Well, over the past few weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church, we have been um, looking at the subject of prayer, and it's really because it's a, it's a burden of mine. Uh, it's a burden um, for us as a church. And here's what I long for Rock Valley Bible Church, that we would be a dependent church. That is, that we would be a, a dependent people, dependent upon God for everything. And I long, even more than just being dependent, that we could be demonstrably dependent. Like, like I've talked many times before, I, I would like us to be a giving church. And, uh, you know, we give in lots of ways, but a demonstrably giving church would be a church where you can say, just look at my checkbook and you can see how much I give financially. You just look at my schedule and see how much I give. Those are demonstrable ways. And so likewise, I would love to have us be a demonstrably dependent church. In other words, when people come to church and they say, well, what's the key to your church? What, what makes it that makes the people love so much? And, and why is it that they, they share the love of Christ so freely with outsiders? Why is it that they can meet someone and just overflow in love towards them? How, how is it that they, they speak of the gospel with other people? And I long to say, God. And I long to demonstrate that by pointing to our prayers and saying, we are a, a praying church. So someone says, well, what do you mean? And so I say, well, well come, come with me. Come on, let, let me show you. Okay, like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Come, let, we'll, be, we'll be invisible on the wall. And just, just, just let me show you. Sunday mornings are prayer meeting. Listen to how they pray. Look at how they gather. Look how they're committed just to lifting up your name there Sunday morning. Or here, here, come, come over here. Look, these groups are gathering at nights and in different homes. Look at this group. Look how they pray together. They're sharing their prayer requests. They're sharing their burdens. Or I say, oh, come, come with me. Come to these families. Look at this family of the church. Or look at this family. Look at, look at this family. See how they're praying together as families? That's, that's their life. They are dependent upon you in every way. Or look at this marriage. When you be sensitive here, right? But we, look at husband and wife on their knees, praying in their bedroom together. They're demonstrating their dependence upon the Lord. I so long that that would be the testimony of, of our church. And I fear that I can't say that. I fear that some of you, I'll go into your bedroom and, and just, you're, you're never praying alone by your wife, with your wife. Or I'll go into your family and, and I'll say, okay, well, I, I, can't, I can't show any family worship here. The only time they pray together is at meals. I, they, they don't gather together and pray. Or... Small groups, there, some of you don't come to small groups. That's okay. There's lots of things going on. You don't have to come to a small group, okay? But you're in your family already. You're in your marriage already. Or maybe Sunday morning prayer meeting. I know many of you don't come to that. We had about 40 of us today. It's good. It's encouraging. Just would pray that that would just be an expression. You might say at the end, just guys, this is an expression of us just saying, God, we, we totally need you and we need your blessing upon us if anything's going to be true in our lives. And, and could it be that our lack of praying together with our, our spouse or with our family or with any kind of small group, whether that's a small group here at church or whether it's a, some kind of group you have at work or at school where you're going or your lack of, of coming to Sunday morning, it, it, is that perhaps an indication of your own self-sufficiency? that you're really not dependent, that you really don't need God? 
Could that be the case? I love the legendary story of Charles Spurgeon when he toured people through the Metropolitan Tabernacle, this big church building on, in London, Elephant End. I forget what the name. I forget the streets. We've been there before. It was a great time. Vaughn and I were, were there. But he, he took them through, and, and this is legendary, but it, he, he took him to the basement, and he said, you know, this is our powerhouse right here where the people praying together. And though that may not might be true. What was true was the constant questions that came in. Charles Spurgeon, how's your ministry so successful? And he often answered four simple words, five simple words, my people pray for me. Now, here is a man who was eminently gifted. He could have stood upon his gifts alone, but he was a humble man to deflect his praise to say his congregation a praying people. And he said, you want to see it? Why don't you come? Let me show you. And he would take them Monday nights. He'd say, look, look at the people who've gathered to pray, to pray for us, pray for the church, pray for our outreach, pray for our love for the lost. And several thousand people on Monday nights came and gathered to pray. And Charles Spurgeon could say, no, no, no. People could say of Charles Spurgeon, no, it's your giftedness. That's what brings all these people. And he says, no, I, I think it's our, our prayer meeting that does it. He could argue back and forth. But that's a true source of power. And that's my heart. Not, not, not so much that we would have thousands of people at prayer meeting because it's kind of impossible unless we clone ourselves really fast, right? But, but the, the outsiders could come and look at our church. We could say, you know what? Let me just show you how dependent we are on God. And it's not our gifts. It's not our wonders. But we're praying in the home. We're praying with groups. We're praying together as a church, just really trusting God and this morning, what I want to do in our time of the Bible is look at the book of, of Acts. I want to look at the prayer meetings that took place in the early church. And so my message this morning is entitled, Early Church Prayer Meetings. When I talked to Yvonne about my message this week, um, I said, yeah, I'm going to look at early church prayer meetings. And you were kind of confused, I think, at first. Now, I'm not talking about like 6 a.m. prayer meetings, all right? I'm talking about prayer meetings in the, the first century church as recorded in the book of Acts because the book of Acts records a few of them. And we're going to look at what each of them have to teach us about prayer. The first one comes in the very first chapter. Remember, the book of Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus and his disciples together for 40 days. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, and his disciples were a bit confused. They did not quite understand, and they said in chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Like, we've been talking about the kingdom. Is it now you're going to? And Jesus replied, it is not for you. Verse 7, to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And soon after this, Jesus ascended into heaven, lifted right up the cloud in midair. And, and these disciples right, were, were almost like... And then some came along... I think it was um, two men stood in white robes, probably angels, and they basically said, shut your mouths, guys. He said, just as Jesus ascended, so he'll come back again. Now, I think they left that place bewildered and confused and discouraged. Here is the one who guided us for three years. 
He'd been crucified, but he rose again. He was with us 40 days, and now he's gone again, and we don't know what. He's got this mysterious thing. We don't quite understand everything that he's been saying. And then he rises up from our midst out of our sight. I, I think that their head was spinning. They didn't quite understand what was going on. I believe that they just asked the question, now what? Now what? And I think they did what only you can do when you have no idea what's next. They gathered to pray. Look at verse 12. When they returned, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. So this is like right back from Olivet. It's across the Kidron Valley, up uh, across Jerusalem to the, to the east. A Sabbath day's journey, that is not a very far walk. You could probably walk this walk in 20 minutes, something like that. It's not a very long walk. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And then he numbers them. Peter and John, James and Andrew, that's four. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, that's four more. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, that's three more. So 11 disciples. And all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, we don't know how many women were here. We don't know how many brothers, Jesus' brothers were there. But you get this gathering, maybe 20 people, just confused, together, praying. Now, I know my first point's reading into it a little bit, but I, I think it's true. I think that they were praying in confusion for direction. It's my first point. The early church prayed in confusion for direction. In other words, I don't think they, they fully understood what was going on. They were, they were confused. Maybe you could even say this. They were they were praying in discouragement for direction. Um, that could be like, because I think they're confused, discouraged, kind of without, without hope, trying to figure out Jesus was gone, he spoke to some kingdom, and they're looking for direction, like, like what to do next. And they did in Acts chapter 1, they appointed a successor to Judas, one Matthias. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Jesus had spoken about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, chapter 2, they were all together in one place, and I assume just praying again. There were about 120 of them, as a later verse says. Um, but they were there, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was exactly what Jesus said in 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they received this power to speak in tongues. And then, as a result of that, then they had the power to go out and speak with boldness. Right after that, Peter does, and thousands come to Christ. But I believe that this was an answer to their prayers. They were praying in confusion or in discouragement for direction. God gave them the Holy Spirit. They became witnesses, and the kingdom spread then into Jerusalem, all about Jerusalem. And then it, it spread to the Gentiles. That's the book of Acts, spreading all around the world. And I believe this really hits for application for us today. I mean, in your life, is, is there any confusion in your life today? Like, like, how did this happen? Or, or why did this happen? Or, or what does this mean? Or God, why did you bring this? Is there any discouragement in your life today? Like, oh, I'm trying. Oh, can't quite get it. Or it seems like this is always coming. This, any discouragement? Any 
confusion. Maybe stuff in your life you just don't understand. Maybe circumstances are, are in your life beyond your control where you, you just desire, God, just, just encourage me or just, just help me or, or maybe just show me what I should do or a decision to make or what, how, I, how I should walk or what should I say to this person or how should I, I walk here? What, what should I do? And if that's at all you, I just, that's what the early church was. I just exhort you to pray. And in the, in the spirit of my message this morning, I'd encourage you to pray with other people. Gather some believers around you. Sunday morning or not, on the phone maybe, maybe some friends, maybe your family, and just say, boy, this is really confusing to me. And just, just pray. Join them in prayer. Better yet, how about you gather where other believers are already gathering to pray and pray with them? They're already they're, they're geared up to pray. That'd be helpful. You don't spend so much time talking about things and you do just praying to the Lord. Because when those in the early church were discouraged, they, they sought the Lord. That's what they did. And note, note how they sought Him. Chapter 1, verse 14 again. It says, All these with one accord, that is, they were united together, were devoting themselves to prayer. High degree of commitment, high degree of passion. You might translate this, that they gave themselves to prayer. Prayer was the thing that they did. And we do the calculation, of course. You see that that chapter 1, verse 14 takes place 40 days after the resurrection because Jesus was with them for 40 days. And um, then... 50 days was when the Pentecost was. So you got about 10 days there where I believe that they were earnestly devoting themselves to prayer for 10 days. Just giving themselves to God. And God gave His Holy Spirit upon them. Notice they're praying in desperation. They they just didn't know what to do. All they knew is that Jesus promised to give them something. Chapter 1, verse 8. So they just said, what? What God? And you know what? Your life right now might be pretty stable. Your, your job is stable, right? Your family's intact. You have direction in your life for the next decade or so. Maybe you don't feel a need. To, I, don't, I don't feel that need. I, I know where I'm going. I know where I am. I, things are pretty good for me. I just need to walk through these doors. Well, have you ever considered that maybe you're strong to pray for others? Maybe others need your prayers. So I ask you to come and pray with the people of Rock Valley Bible Church. To be encouraged and to encourage. All right, second point. Not only early church pray in confusion or discouragement for direction, they also prayed in victory for boldness. Look over chapter 4. This context is Peter and John's released from prison. They'd been arrested for preaching salvation in Jesus. And we see in chapter 4, verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, that is, Peter and John, exhorting them, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. This is the religious elite. This is the Sanhedrin. They were greatly, came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching and the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's real. We saw him for 40 days. We talked to him. Believe in the Messiah. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. So the next day they stood before the religious establishment, gave their defense. Verse 8, Peter, again, filled with the Holy Spirit. This may have been another filling, may have been an empowering of the Holy Spirit, probably. He said, rulers and 
elders and the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then the council conferred together, and basically they said, well, we see this miracle, we see this boldness, we can't deny it. And basically they said, just don't preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Then they released them. And we pick up the prayer meeting then in chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. So they came back, all this whole story, and it's much longer than what even I told today. But they came back rejoicing that there was some victory here. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, the Creator God who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, we saw Psalm 2 fulfilled. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This was a spontaneous praise gathering. That's what we read about here. Peter and John have been custody of the religious leaders and they didn't know that all that would happen to them. They didn't know that they'd be released. You know, with hindsight, we can think, oh yeah, well, they're just released. But there's a difference of being in the moment and being at the back end. Like I remember we had some friends who um, adopted some kids from the Congo. And uh, this was a couple summers ago, four or five years ago, I remember that. And, um, and our friend was over in the Congo, and he went to adopt these two precious little girls. And as he was over there, he was blogging the whole time. And we were like uh, um, reading this and like, oh, did he get another blog post? Did he get another blog post? No, not yet. Yep, okay, here we got one, and we're kind of reading it. But we didn't know the end. We, we didn't know because it was it was kind of dicey, like he had to go to one place and then to go to another place had to go to another place and get all these government things done and wrapped up and whether he's going to get back or not. And it wasn't a sure thing at all. And we didn't know the end. And for us, it was like way more exciting to kind of kind of read and listen to it as it's going on. than what I did was actually I copied and pasted all of the blog entries and made it into a book. And I, I published, self-published it, and then I sent them a copy, and it just like, boom, appeared uh, at their doorstep. It was really fun. But, but reading the book is way different than experiencing it firsthand. Because when you're experiencing it firsthand, you don't know the end. And these guys didn't know the end. For all they knew, that Peter was going to be crucified as Jesus had been. But that was not the case. They just threatened and released. And the church responded by praising the sovereign Lord with the power and ability over the affairs of life. 
and no doubt had the power over these religious leaders in the city as well. And that was the message of Psalm 2 that they quoted here and recorded in verses 25 and, and 26, that the, the hatred of the rulers of the earth have, have gone against the, the Lord, against His Christ, and the posture of God is one of amusement. It says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 3, that the Lord sits from heaven and He laughs at them. Kind of like, <laughs> really? So picture an NFL lineman, right? All 6'6", 330 pounds of muscle. Okay? A little bit like Adam Lask, if you're looking for someone to... Okay. <laughs> Just a beast. And then this eight-year-old comes up angry, angry with him for some reason. Okay? So, like, you know, maybe he's a Denver Peyton Manning fan, and he goes up against one of the Patriot guys. Goes, ah! You know, and it's really so picture David, okay, going against Adam and just ah! and gets really mad. And, and <laughs> what's what's the lineman going to do? Like, <laughs> that's that's kind of cute. And 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 the little boy, okay, might might get a first shot in there. But after that, the lineman's going to pretty much gather him. And say, hey, come on, cal- calm down, calm down. It's it's really okay. But in his mind, the eight-year-old, he's going to get that guy because he ended Peyton Manning's career. And the little guy, uh, the big guy, though, is like, it's not a problem. And I just say that the disparity is even greater when it comes to God and the nations. That when the religious leaders rose up against Jesus and struck him dead on the cross, they thought they landed the first punch. They thought they landed the last punch. But in reality, it was God who sits on the throne and laughs, and all their devious plans were under the... Sovereign control, design of God. Verse 27, right? Read this again. There were these people against your anointed. There was Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. These guys were all against the Messiah, but these were all against your Messiah to do whatever your hand predestined to occur. Like God was in control like the whole time. It wasn't a revolution gone astray. It was all orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. And so they arrest Peter and John. And the church knew full well, okay, God, those that arrested Peter and John in the Sanhedrin, they are as much under control as was Herod and Pontius Pilate, the death of Jesus. And, and they praise God for his conquering power of, of, of what they had done. And Peter and John knew that they were not at the mercy of the religious leaders, but they were at the mercy of God to do whatever he wanted to do with them. That's why they prayed. Why do you pray to a sovereign God who orchestrates all things? Because you know that he orchestrates all things. Why do you pray for someone's salvation? Because you know that God is the one who moves the hearts. And so likewise, here they prayed. And now, Lord, right, look upon their threats. Right? Look upon the threats of these people that they're making and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in boldness. And that's what happened. God took note of their threats. And God granted them boldness. In fact, even in chapter 5, we see the, the council of Gamaliel. Um, one of those prominent Pharisees. I believe that this was guided by the sovereign hand of God for have Gamaliel speak better than he knew. In Acts chapter 5, verse 38, he says, I tell you, keep away from these men. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fall. Because he had previously reminded them of some insurrections by humans that had that had fallen down and the leaders had been killed. But, Gamaliel says, verse 39, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice 
And when they called in the apostles, verse 40, they beat them and charged them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the rest of the story is the, in the book of Acts. And indeed, even the rest of the story is the history of the Christian church. You're not able to overthrow them because God is in our midst. And the boldness of the Christian church to testify to the saving blood of Jesus for thousands of years is a testimony to God's great power Sovereign power of praise. And so let me ask you, right? Do you need boldness? Do you need boldness to talk to others about Jesus? If you're anything like me, you'll say, yes, I do. I am cowardly and timid of heart. Then how about this? How about praying? How about praying for boldness with other people? Like the early church was, and indeed the prayer was answered, right? Verse 31. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak of the Word of God with boldness. God granted that request. Do you think that God would grant that request among us? We just pray for boldness. God, just, just give us wisdom to speak. We open our prayer time to opportunities to just pray for people who are unsaved. And I don't know, maybe five, six, seven of you just spoke about people you're interacting with right now. And, and I was praying in my heart, God, give them boldness to speak even this week with them with the gospel. And just thinking about God, we're gathered together, dependent upon you. Help empower us so that your word can go out for your glory. Or just think about this. It's the dead of winter right now, okay? One of the last things you think about is summer. Maybe one of the first things you think about is summer. Like, oh, when will that come? It's not going to come soon enough. Um, But think about in summer. What happens in summer? Everyone's outside all of a sudden. And those neighbors who you just kind of saw driving in and they open up the garage door and they drive in and they close their garage door and then they go and then they, you, you, you never see them. Uh, in fact, though, when was it? I think it was Tuesday night. I happened to go outside in the frigid cold and, and put our garbage can out there and lo and behold, the neighbor was at the same time. I haven't spoken with him for maybe two months, a month and a half maybe. Um, and so I, I wasn't dressed for it at all. I just kind of had some sweatpants on. It was really cold. Just kind of had a sweatshirt on. Was kind of went out there really fast, like just to do that. And then I, we we talked because we finally connected. In the summertime, though, boy, you can connect and talk like all you want. And you have around you, you know, whatever, eight people. This one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all around you where you are, depending upon where you live. And just, what if you'd pray for boldness, just to speak, or maybe it's your work, boldness, just to speak. You think God would answer that prayer? I would encourage you perhaps to even come and gather with other people who are going to encourage you and pray for you to speak and maybe ask you what kind of opportunities have you had this week to speak? See, when it comes to boldness, it's not, it's not your ability to answer all of life's questions. In fact, the more, the more I live, the more I'm convinced of this, that people know... People know what's right. It's the ability to speak into their life to tell them what's right and wrong and to point to them what's right and wrong in their lives. But it's time spent with Jesus that gives boldness. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. In other words, it wasn't their education. They were uneducated. It wasn't their nobility or their height. They were common men. But what was the distinction that gave them the boldness? It was that they were with Jesus. 
And, of course, we can't be with Jesus in the same way that they're with Jesus. But I do believe that as we commune with God in prayer, we are communing with Jesus. It is communication. As we are with Him, that will give us the boldness. And so come, I invite you to pray with the people of Rock Valley Bible Church. Maybe God will give us all boldness to speak about Jesus to others like He did the early church. All right, early church... Prayed in confusion for direction and victory for boldness. And thirdly, in danger for deliverance. Acts chapter 12, we see another prayer meeting. In fact, I love this prayer meeting because this is so much like our prayer meetings that have such feeble faith. The Bible's so real. It doesn't present, it presents some pretty remarkable things, but oftentimes it prevent, presents that which is just real. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 1, about that time Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. This is but one event of the long lines of persecutions in the life of the early church. James killed, in verse 2, by the sword. Peter imprisoned. And Herod, the leader, received some positive feedback from James's killing or beheading is probably what, what took place. And best we can tell, you read between the lines, but it's pretty clear, is that Herod was planning to kill Peter as well. The death of James pleased the people. He was planning, as it says at the end of verse 4, intending after the Passover to bring Peter out before the people, just like he brought James out. brought James out, they said, death to him, death to him. They're going to bring Peter out, they're going to say, death to him, death to him. And this is going to score some political points. Many politicians are in it just for the popularity, for the strength, and what the people want. That's what they are going to do. And so it can only be expected. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to him, made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's in danger. People praying for him. Nothing will provoke your prayers more than when a loved one is in danger. Let's, a mother or father is sick. Without Christ, you pray. A child has a life-threatening accident. And you'll pray. Or disease, you'll pray. A child maybe is in moral danger of making bad choices. And you'll pray. You know, if a marriage is in trouble, friends, you'll pray. Peter's in trouble. And the church who loved him greatly was, was praying. Now, it's interesting here. We don't know what they were praying for. Um, were they praying for his deliverance, that Peter be released? Or were they praying for his faithfulness? That he remained strong. They wouldn't deny the faith as he did when Jesus was on trial. That he would be faithful unto death. I think both these things are probably how they prayed. I wouldn't be surprised if they prayed in this way, right? Oh God, you, you know of, of Peter. He, he is in prison. He's been a, a faithful saint of yours. God, he has preached and thousands have come to Christ. And he is really our leader. And, and, and we long for his deliverance god we long that you would protect him we long oh god that he would be safe that you would you would give mercy to him at the hand of herod that he would be delivered but if this is not your will oh god we pray god 
that, that he would be faithful, that he would not deny Christ, but he would be an example to us, that he would be faithful to the end to show that faith and trust in Jesus is indeed good. So God, please answer our prayer. There's a prayer for deliverance, and if it's not his will, then a prayer for strength. And we pray that kind of prayer all the time. But never in a million years, I think, would the church have expected God to answer their prayers in the way that he did. God delivered Peter from jail in a most miraculous way. I just tell the story because it's a great story to be told. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He, He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly and the chains fall off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that What was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And I love what happens next. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing by the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting. She said, no, no, it's him. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Stop bothering us. Don't you know we're praying for Peter? Don't you know we're praying that that God would release him from prison? Don't you know that he's scheduled to stand before Herod at this very moment? Don't you know how important it is for us to, to pray for him right now? We can't be disturbed with these things. So stop, Rhoda, and be quiet. Let us pray because of the crucial hours for Peter. And yet the answer was right there knocking at the door. How like us all. We might pray and pray and pray and never see the answer of God. Only afterwards, perhaps, do we see how God, oh, God did answer that prayer. I, I was just needing guidance and direction. God did answer that prayer. Oh, God did change that heart. Oh, God did do this. And so many answers to prayer we might just miss. In how many ways has God's gracious hand worked in our lives? only to miss it like like these did. But those of the prayer meeting were able to see the answer. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went on another place because Herod was going to come looking for them. Here, here's, here's a big question. Okay, This is a theological question. Maybe, maybe I'll tackle this question next week. Huh? Do you think God would have rescued Peter if the church had not prayed for him? Now, that sets off all sorts of theological questions, right? About predestination, the sovereign hand of God, the role of, the role of prayer, the role of our wills, and all that, all that sort of things. But the question caused you to think. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. There's a direct correlation you're you're not asking therefore you don't have could it be that god's blessing upon your life 
is not coming because you're not asking. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, I'm not advocating health, wealth, prosperity, sort of praying and asking because James says in the very next verse, James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your own passions. But I'm simply putting it to you to say, you know what, if, if you're praying more, really expressing yourself to God, dedicated to prayer, devoting yourselves, giving yourself to prayer, would God use you in a greater way for the kingdom than he's using you right now? And perhaps the church, God, God may use, would God use us in a greater way if we simply but asked him? If we'd pray fervently together as a body and say, God, use us for your kingdom. And that's not a selfish prayer. That's not, it's not saying, hey, God, give us more money. It's just saying, God, use us for your kingdom. Maybe make us poorer because it, it means that we give more money away to missions or this neighborhood or to people in need or whatever. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. And could it be that when we pray, God, thy kingdom come through Rock Valley Bible Church, that we pray that souls would be saved, that lives would be changed, that doubters would believe, and that all the world would see your effect upon our lives. Might it be that God would delight to answer those prayers we pray so corporately together? And might it be that the fact that we don't pray so together means that we lack? So I ask you to come and pray, the people of God at Rock Valley Bible Church. Well, let's look at our last point. Early church prayed in confusion for direction, in victory for boldness, in danger for deliverance, and finally, I'm just calling this in uncertainty for guidance. For guidance, in uncertainty for guidance. So this is a little bit like the first one, but 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 this one situation is a little bit different. In the first first point, they're like confused. They need direction. In this case, things are going well. They have lots of opportunities. They say, God, what what would you have us to do? And that's Acts chapter thirteen. God had greatly blessed the church in Antioch, is what we find in chapter 13, 1 through 3. Um, Let's go back to chapter 11 to get a glimpse of what God had done at this church. Verse 19, Now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's Acts chapter 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. It's just been the Jewish people. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who... On coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, that's the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And the great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So this Gentiles are coming, coming to faith in Christ in Antioch. And uh, the people in Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem heard it, and so they send Barnabas up there. And uh, when he came... And he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is the Apostle Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. And they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And in Acts chapter 13, we see this booming, blossoming church at a crossroads. Like, what, what, what are we going to do? They didn't know what they were going to do. Things were going well. They had lots of people, but they were uncertain in terms of their vision. And so they prayed for, for guidance. They had all these well-trained and gifted men at the church because Saul had spent a year with them, training them theologically. 
And uh, there was much work to do throughout the whole world spreading the gospel. Here was like a, a beachhead Gentile church that, that had a heart for the Gentiles. And so they said, how, how, do, how do we do this, O God? And so in chapter 13, we see them seeking the Lord. We see chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. He named seven of them. Barnabas, Simeon is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I guess that's five of them. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now here is a prayer meeting, particularly of leaders. This may be like an elders meeting. This is maybe like the the key leaders of the church because we have five guys um, written here. We don't know a lot about some of them, but we know a lot about Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was chief encourager always trying to get others involved in the ministry. I mean, he, he was the one who immediately sided with Paul. He was the one who brought Saul, Paul, to Antioch in the first place. He was willing to give John Mark a second chance. We see that in Acts chapter 15. He gave of his wealth in Acts chapter 4 to the needy, just having this all-in heart of encouragement and help. Saul, on the other hand, was the, the teacher, the spokesman, a great mind Probably the greatest mind of his time that God would entrust the oracles of, of God to him to write, to write down so much of the New Testament. And God says, these are the two that I want you to team up to set apart for me in the gospel of God. These were, as I've heard said many times, these are the best. You send your best out of there to do a work. And so off went Saul and Barnabas and thus, thus launched the great missionary movement. And you can read all about it in chapters 13 and 14, how they sailed to, to Cyprus and they went up to Pisidian Antioch and went up to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and then back again. And then they returned to Antioch and reported everything, how great it went. And then on different journeys, right, Saul went and visited the cities. Barnabas went and visited the cities. And, and Paul went and visited and then took off west for his second missionary journey. And then his third missionary journey, he went, went further. And then he wanted to go clear out to Spain, out to the outermost regions of the world. Here's the thing about this prayer meeting is that I don't think that any one of these guys had it in mind. Hey, let's let's like send these guys out and let's start this journey and let's plant all these churches. I don't think that was really in their mind. I think it was a God thing. I, I think that God revealed them something in a vision to do what they never would have done. It would have been outside the scope of their possibilities. I think it's the value of prayer meetings that God may reveal something to us that we are not even considering or thinking about. And I know that we as elders, we pray like this. God, what, what would you have for us? How, how, how can we best serve the church? How can we best lead the church? We don't know. We're just kind of stumbling through this thing. But maybe, maybe you'd help us. And maybe prayer meetings would help, would help with that. And it certainly, I'm not sure it was just these five because verse 3 says, In fasting and praying, I sense as the whole church laid hand on them and sent them off. Well, maybe it's the leaders that laid hands on them, but the whole church, I think, was probably around and with that. Because when they, they got back, they reported everything of, a, of, the, of, the, of what they had experienced to the church. When they came back, um, if, if you look even of chapter 14, verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they, they declared all the things that God had done with them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. So they came back, the church was rejoicing. I believe the church was totally on board with that. But so it was a unified effort from the church to go and send their best on this journey. Who knows what's going to happen? 
they're probably praying fervently at home and they're probably praying fervently as they went along and great stories in chapter 13 and chapter 14. But that was the missionary movement that launched from a prayer meeting of saying, God, we, we lack vision, right? We, we have opportunities here, but we, we don't know. God, please guide us. And, and I wish that God would guide us this way by an audible voice saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. But I do believe that God impresses our hearts for sure about ways to go. It's a, you know, just even praying for us at church, where would we go? I just encourage you to do that together. Well, let me, let me just finish my message this morning giving you three uses of a prayer meeting that Charles Spurgeon gave. He's one to listen to when it comes to prayer meeting, and I'll just go through these fast. He says a prayer meeting, it's a very useful thing, he says, for Christians to pray together even apart from an answer. Regardless of the answer, he says, it's profitable for Christians to pray together. And particularly there, he even speaks about family. Happy is the household where the altar burns day and night with a sweet perfume of family worship. Where there's just an attitude of, of a transcendence uh, of, of God, of saying that we are reminded of the gospel, that we are justified by faith alone. As we were reminded today in our prayer meeting, oh, the depth of the riches, of the, the wisdom and mercy of God. Who's become his counselor? For from him and to him and through him are all things... Glory to God, Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Our family will be working on that. Several other families will be having that. If you want to listen to a song about that, there's some fighter verse CDs in the back. But it's just profitable to pray together whether the answer comes or not. Second thing, Spurgeon says, the prayer meeting serves another purpose sometimes. It's, it also generates devotion. He speaks about some who come and who are, are dull in their faith or who are struggling in their faith. It's time to come and be encouraged by the faith of others. <clears throat> right When you've been busy all day long, as Spurgeon says, and are not able to shake off the cares of busyness, and you get warmed up by getting near to each other in your prayers. He says, just a, a divine excitement can come in, can stir you. So you're feeling like, I mean, how often people see like, oh, I don't, don't feel that, I shouldn't go to prayer meeting. Like, maybe you'll be encouraged by other people. But I find that in general, right, when, when people are doing badly and not walking with the Lord, they aren't with the people of God and they don't pray and they're not in the word. And I just say, take directions toward God. When it is your cold, that's when you ought to be working and walking towards God in a greater way. The third benefit of prayer meetings, Spurgeon says this, the prayer meeting serves another purpose. God has promised extraordinary and special blessings in connection with it. And he quotes then Matthew 18 which is in the context of church discipline, but the principle applies where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. God is in our midst all the time. But there's a special way in which he is in our midst when we agree, when we pray together. And so it brings a special, a special extraordinary blessing just as we offer up our prayer to God. And so my hope, my message today, my message next week, and I'm not sure how long I'm going to continue to go on prayer, just that we would be a, a people demonstrably dependent upon God and that God would shower his blessings upon us as a result. So let's pray. Oh God, use my words. God, help us to be people of prayer. I know there are reasons why people can't come on Sunday mornings, God, and that's, that's fine. God, help us to, to see that. God, I, I, I pray, though, that we might not be self-sufficient, that in ourselves we don't pray. God, that with our families we're not praying. With our spouses we're not praying. 
that we're not praying with our any other kind of Christian small group. We're not praying together. When someone stands up here on Sunday mornings and prays, our mind drifts. Oh God, help us to focus on you. Help us to have a heart that, that is, is lifted up to you, totally dependent upon you. God, so I, I would even pray that you would, God, create in us a dependency. God, so that we would see our need to call out to you. Oh God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.